You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's episode, we're discussing the FBI's role in the growth and promotion of white Christian nationalism. How exactly has the FBI supported white Christian nationalist goals? How did the agency's long-serving director, J. Edgar Hoover, inspire white evangelicals and others who wanted to maintain a Christian nation? And how does knowing about the FBI's history of partnerships with conservative white religious institutions, leaders, and communities help us make sense of the prevalence of white Christian nationalism today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Revealer podcast and our first episode in 2023. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Lerone Martin, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Chair and Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. He is the author of the new book out this February called The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism. You can read an excerpt from from his book in the upcoming February issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Lerone. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brett. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. It's very well written and intriguing and alarming. And it opens with this great provocative first sentence that immediately pulled me in and that I want to quote for everyone. You open the book with the line, quote, I sued the FBI to write this book. So tell us about that lawsuit and what you were seeking. Why did you sue the FBI? What happened as a result of it? And how did going through that contribute to producing the book you've now written? Well, it all began with um, the death of Billy Graham. Uh, When Billy Graham passed away, I realized that the Freedom of Information Act states that an individual's rights to textual materials that may be within the executive agency files, rights would be um, extinguished. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI for um, an FBI file or any information the FBI would have had on Billy Graham. I've made that request. Um, The Freedom of Information Act states that the Bureau must respond within 20 days to acknowledge your 20 business days to acknowledge your request and um, inform you what the next steps will be and make a determination. When I finally got a response, it was two months later. So long after the 20 days uh, allotted mm-hmm. by, by the statute and the letters essentially said, um, we don't know if we have anything on Billy Graham, but if we do, we'll let you know. That I filed the request in February. I got the letter in April. And so, you know, given that it was the federal government, it was, I didn't really know what to do next. You were kind of, you know, dependent upon them. I happened to meet a lawyer, a dear friend of mine um, now named uh, Tuwan Samahan. And I was telling him what I was working on. And like a good lawyer, he said, well, you know, you sh- that's illegal and you should sue. Wow. And um I said, well, you know, I don't really know about any about how to do that, how to go about doing that. So we yeah. said, I'll help you. I'll help you, um, and I'll do it for free. And so we worked together, and we filed a lawsuit against the Department of Justice and the FBI 
um, for failing to um, follow the statute of the law. From there, we received the FBI was supervised by a federal judge in the Washington, Washington D.C. Uh, District Court to supervise the FBI on releasing anything they had on Billy Graham to me on a rolling basis. When I finally received these documents, most of them detailed the FBI's handling of death threats against Billy Graham, and as Mm -hmm. well as an excessive amount of um, newspaper clippings detailing Billy Graham's travels, as well as some of his statements, including Hmm. Billy Graham being denied entrance at one point in time into Poland. It's, hmm. But they, they had said they had a number of other documents that had either been destroyed or had been lost. Uh-huh. So that was that was disappointing. But what I decided to do was to begin to file FBI request um, for the world around Billy Graham. Since I couldn't get hmm. anything on Billy Graham, I decided to file requests for the world around him. So that included Christianity hmm. Today. Uh, Youth for Christ, um, Campus Crusade for Christ, and a host of other organizations that I knew that Graham was involved in. And that is what allowed me to write the story of the Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover. Interesting. Well, that's a great segue then to talking about uh, the meat of your book. So the book is titled The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover. So I'd like to start with him before we talk about the FBI more broadly so that everyone listening is on the same page. So can you just tell us a a little bit about J. Edgar Hoover? What was his role in the FBI? How would you describe how he led the agency? And why is he a significant figure with a long-lasting legacy? J. Edgar Hoover is the father and the the genius behind the FBI that we know today. Hoover began as the director of what was then called the Bureau of Investigation, the BOI, in 1924. And he remained in that position until 1972, so almost a half a century. Hmm. uh, One man was ahead of the FBI. And he is the one that Hmm. gave us the modern FBI from everything from um, FBI agents carrying guns, their ability to um, make arrests. And he also was behind the organization of the FBI, having field offices across the Mm. country and resident agencies across the country, bringing science um, to the study of law enforcement and crime solving. And also, Mm. of course, what I argue in the book is bringing a certain ideal around um, Christianity and national security. Great. So now that we have some of his professional bio, I think listeners will also be intrigued to learn about what you can tell us about J. Edgar Hoover, the person, especially about his religious identity and practices uh, and his sexuality. And I'm asking about both because as people will learn from your book, he became an inspirational figure for white evangelicals. So his own religious and sexual practices are intriguing in that regard. Most people, uh, I think it's probably one of the main things people know is that the, the questions around Hoover's sexuality. Mm-hmm. And what I decided to do in the book was to be descriptive as opposed to label mm-hmm. um, his, his sexuality. And that stems yes. from a decades long relationship he had with his second in command, uh, a man by the name of Special Agent Clyde Tolson. And the two individuals, they, from the beginning, when, when Clyde was hired in the FBI and made a quick 
ascent to his position, they um, vacation together every year. They they arrive to work together every day. They lunch hmm. together every day. And they had dinner together, um, alternating at one another's homes every evening. Hmm. They hmm. went everywhere together. And then when Hoover died, he left his home to Clyde Tolson. And Clyde Tolson moved into the house when Hoover died. And at the funeral, when the flag was taken off of Hoover's casket, it was folded up and without hesitation, given to Clyde Tolson. So hmm. in many ways, they functioned as a domestic partnership. And whether or not they were ever romantically involved, and we have no credible evidence of that, I felt hmm. that it was beyond the point. I think that it also puts sex on a kind of a pedestal in a way when we talk about intimate relationships. And so I decided hmm. without credible evidence, it was best to just be descriptive of his relationship with Clyde. And so Hoover did not have any children. He, uh, he never married. Um, he lived um, in this childhood home until his mother died um, when he was 43 years old. Even despite all of this, because of his commitment to um, a certain kind of idea of, of performing masculinity and also his ideas about the role of conservative Christianity being at the heart of the nation's survival, he was lionized by a number of conservative Protestants, and especially in the mid 20th century when the rise of the movement that we now know as white evangelicalism really grabbed a hold of him and saw him as a champion and a spokesperson. Yeah, and just so in, in his own religious practices, do, do you think of him as religious? Do you think of him as an evangelical? How do you is it, are you and are you descriptive there rather as rather than labeling? Same with his sexuality. How does his religious practice line up for you? Hoover um, grew up in church. He grew up primarily as a Presbyterian. Um, he taught Sunday school beginning at uh, uh, in his adolescence, around ten or eleven. Hmm. He chronicles this in his childhood diary. And he's very hmm. committed to it. I mean, he often writes on Monday evening in his diary that he's preparing his Sunday school lesson for next week. He's hmm. very, very, very um, adamant. He's very efficient. He's very serious. He used to teach his Sunday school lessons in his cadet uniform, um, hmm. which bore a whole idea of the merger of a kind of civic life mm-hmm. and a militaristic approach to faith. But he was not an evangelical in the sense that he, he, he always refused, even when he was asked by evangelicals and evangelical publications, to give his account of his conversion. He often said, you know, um, he often was committed to what we would call a liberal Protestant understanding of Christian nurture. And that hmm. is that he would say, I grew up in church and I and faith was always a part of my life. So there never was a time in which I wasn't a Christian. That fits well for what we know now about Christian nationalists and that we recognize now that most Christian nationalists aren't heavy churchgoers. And they're hmm. not too typically concerned about theological particulars, hmm. what matters mm-hmm. most. So they're not so much concerned about these questions of atonement these questions of how one arrives at salvation or the work of Christ on the cross, they're mainly concerned about having a certain idea of conservative Christianity and conservative morality 
being the bedrock of the nation as it relates to citizenship, sexuality, and as it relates to the use of violence to preserve a certain kind of nation. And that was J. Edgar Hoover. He was not much of a churchgoer per se, but he often talked about the importance of church, the importance of Sunday school, being at the foundation of American life and shaping young, young adults and Americans. And he felt that if Christianity was not at the core of the nation, that the nation would be punished by God and would, would be open itself up to complete destruction, either by subversion, crime, and then later communism. Fascinating. So as you were describing him, you, you mentioned that he becomes an inspiration to many Christians, particularly evangelicals, even though he himself did not identify as an evangelical, as you said, nor was he married to a woman. And one of the things that I think is um, fascinating about Hoover that you mentioned in the book and sort of how he becomes a source of religious inspiration. And so you describe this church in Washington, D.C. that puts up a 33-foot-tall stained-glass window dedicated to him, and you quote a prayer the congregation recited, which I'll read, quote, We honor today a man of Christian stature and national leadership. We offer our thanks to thee for such men as J. Edgar Hoover, and pray that more men will be forthcoming in our nation. So what do you make of that? Why was he this source of religious inspiration? or religious and national inspiration? You know, why did white Protestants, especially white evangelical communities, want more men like Hoover? Hoover decided that America could not survive without a certain idea of conservative Protestantism being at the core. And for Hoover, um, that meant policing other kinds of religious faith communities. It meant policing um, folks who had no religious confession. So if one was an atheist, one needed to be policed and watched. And hmm. he also lionized um, a constant reference to the old days. He was a tremendous expositor of the American Jeremiah. And this form of rhetoric or speech about America used to be this great nation. And we were this great nation chosen to be that nation by God. And if we are not faithful, we will lose that status and we will slide into destruction and non-existence or even perhaps be taken over by communists. And so that reference to the constant, we have to go back. We were once mm -hmm. great. And if we can go back and replicate what we used to be in the past, then we can once again be God's chosen nation. And that ideal appealed to a number of, of white evangelicals, especially during the Cold War, with the threat around communism or the threat that the communist world was going to take over America, rob America of its faith, rob America of its freedom. Hoover's use of the Jeremiah about, look, we're, we're, we're in danger of no longer being God's chosen nation. That really appealed to evangelicals. And... Hoover constantly preached that it was going to be the churches that were going to keep America great, that if it, the churches and the clergy would take their proper role and engage in the nation's political and moral life, then mm -hmm. America would be a great nation. And so that, that message resonated a great deal 
with white evangelicals, especially as they began to become more prominent in the halls mm-hmm. of power with the likes of people mm-hmm. like Billy Graham. So then let's talk about sort of how he uses the powers at the FBI to uh, really shape things in the country and how the FBI becomes the sort of source and promoter of white Christian nationalism that you've been talking about. So I imagine that many listeners might think or hope that the FBI would maybe monitor white Christian nationalism in an attempt to prevent violence or social unrest. But your book makes the case that today's white Christian nationalism can trace much of its roots and support to the FBI. And you say that, quote, uh, Hoover built up the FBI as a white Christian force that partnered with white evangelicals to aid and abet the rise of white Christian nationalism. So could you talk a bit about, you know, what were these religious partnerships that Hoover created? What did he do within his powers that promoted a white Christian nation and just generally his ideas about race and religion and how they uh, shaped actual work conducted by the agency? The first way that I would respond to that would be Hoover proselytized within the FBI. So when Hoover takes over the FBI, he begins to mandate um, that agents sign an oath or what he's calling the law enforcement pledge. And in that pledge, when he hires agents, they have to sign that they will be both ministers to those who are in need and soldiers of the nation to protect the nation. So Hoover begins to cultivate within his FBI the image for his agents to be ministers and soldiers. And he does that by having FBI agents Um, participate in spiritual retreats beginning in the 1930s, as well as having Catholic worship services and Protestant worship services. And all of these um, religious practices help to cultivate the idea, both within the FBI and to the American public, that these Mm -hmm. individuals are the soldiers and ministers that are going to protect the nation. And while doing so, when the FBI finally, and I'll talk more about this in a minute, finally begins to hire black special agents in the 1960s, these agents are excluded and not invited to these actual worship services. And so even though (laughs) worship practices become a space of practicing race and practicing white supremacy and segregation. So the the second way is by partnering with white evangelical organizations, most prominently Christianity Today. And and with Christianity Today, the FBI becomes a contributor to the content of the magazine in a a heavy way. Um, Hoover writes these essays for Christianity Today. They um, are written by a gentleman who has a PhD, who's a scholar, and he ends up becoming the ghostwriter for Hoover. They coordinate with Carl F.H. Henry, Reverend Carl F.H. Henry, who was the editor of Christianity Today. These essays are then vetted by both men and are published within Christianity Today. And then from there, what makes it phenomenal is that these essays are then, of course, published and sent around the country to subscribers of Christianity Today. The FBI then republishes these essays with with literal federal government um, paper, which is then stamped with the FBI seal of approval. Mm-hmm. Under the prompt to have published in Christianity Today and distributed to FBI agents across the country. 
And then what we find in the FBI file is constant letters from white evangelicals who are writing the FBI, praising Hoover for the essays, but also requesting reprints. And then preachers are writing to the FBI saying, Mr. Hoover, thank you for your essay. I used your essay and read it from the pulpit as my sermon Hmm. on Sunday. So the FBI then becomes the ghostwriter for a great deal of of evangelical sermons in American life. So Hmm. preachers from across the nation are literally preaching what Hoover says. Billy Graham never does this um, word for word, but Graham begins to quote from J. Edgar Hoover in several of his sermons and as well on his as well as on his radio show. And finally, the FBI then begins to police other religious groups and to surveil them and to harass them, men such as Martin Luther King Jr., the National Council of Churches, which would be the mainstream Protestants that the FBI believes are entirely too liberal. And hmm. also the FBI starts to become an adjudicator for evangelical faith. People begin writing the FBI and asking questions. Should I listen to Oral Roberts? Should I listen to Billy Graham? Which Bible should I read, Mr. Hoover? And Hoover and the FBI then begin to adjudicate and respond to these questions. And so in all these ways, the FBI aids and abets a certain idea of Christianity and the role that it should play in American life, and then it sets itself up to be the adjudicator or the judge or the bishop about what is the proper faith that Americans should have in order to keep America safe. Fascinating. Connected to something that you said, could you just elaborate a little bit on, uh, you know, you mentioned that black special agents weren't allowed to worship services and the FBI, you know, monitoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Do you have a sense of Hoover or the, the FBI generally how they thought about black religious communities at this time? And, and if they was an attempt to sort of bring them into a fold or if because they, you know, were not white, they were always going to be for Hoover and, and, and others, a sense of concern. You know, Hoover is not a kind of white supremacist um, in the way like the Klan, in mm-hmm. the sense that Hoover even found the Klan to be offensive. I mean, he talked about them and he said things about them to journalists such as, you know, they're disgusting, they smell. Hmm. You know, so he found the Klan to be offensive simply because he found anyone who thought they could exist outside of law and order as being a, an affront to the American way. So he wasn't the Klan, right? But he, of course, he hated Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. Hoover believed that African Americans were inferior, and Hoover's ideal was to support any African American group that he felt was focused on African Americans pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. So if he found a faith community that he believed was preaching that kind of message, that the best way for African Americans is to work themselves up and gain approval by the broader white public as opposed to protesting structural racism, Hoover would then support that group. And so one one minister in particular was the elder Lightfoot Solomon Mashaw, who was a DC radio broadcaster, very famous across the country. His radio show was on CBS. He was the first minister, black or white, to have his own TV show. He got his own TV show in 1947. He wrote Mashaw letters saying that, I enjoy watching you on television. You're a great minister of what you're doing. And Mashaw hmm. was someone who preached that African-Americans 
should be grateful for coming to hmm. this country because they were introduced to Christianity through slavery, and that African Americans huh. should stop asking for things that they don't deserve, and that if they just work hard, then eventually they will gain the respect of their white citizens. Hoover loved that message, hmm. and Hoover um, partnered with him to help to discredit Martin Luther King Jr. He would give Michelle counterintelligence on King. Michelle would then launder that intelligence and preach it in his sermons to try to convince Americans that King was a communist and not actually trying to make America actually be a more perfect union, but was actually bent on destroying America. So if you are African-American faith community or community of color that had that, that, that kind of orientation to mm -hmm. structural ills in American life, but focused more on individual bootstrapping, then Hoover would see you as being useful and bring you into the fold to a certain point. Fascinating. Thank you. So then while we're on this, you know, sort of the breakdown of the separation of church and state at the FBI, you know, you had mentioned spiritual retreats that um, uh, special agents would attend and, and other sorts of things that were happening at the FBI. You also mentioned in, in the book that uh, I'm going to quote you, the FBI made it very clear, a secure and safe America was a Christian America. And since this is a topic that's returned quite prominently in the past uh, 12 months or so, for those FBI agents uh, or for their supporters then or now, why do you think they believe that a Christian nation is safer than a secular or religiously diverse nation? Is this just about preventing communism? Is it also about preventing crime? What's, what makes a Christian nation safer from an FBI agent's perspective who would buy into that? Most of it is predicated upon the idea that one cannot be moral if one is not Christian or hmm. um, Christian in a particular way. So when we say Christian, we're thinking about a certain kind of Christianity that's wrapped up in both race and citizenship. It's wrapped up in the idea that when one says Christian, one means certain ideas around morality. So that's about um, homosexuality. That's about American society being structured on a very individualistic platform that if one works hard in America, then one can be successful. And working hard means being pious and moral. And if you're pious and moral, that you'll be rewarded. Um, America is a fair country, right, where everyone who's working hard is successful and has lived a good, clean, pious life. If you are down on your luck and you're poor, it's probably because of your lack of morals and piety and virtue. It's also a commitment to certain ideas around family structure, that men should be men and work and make money and women to, are to stay home and to take care of the children. So there's all of this wrapped up in, what, in, in Christianity. It's about family. It's about societal structure. It's also about capitalism. That individual rugged capitalism um, is something that is an expression of God and what God would have. And the idea that American democracy as constituted during Hoover's time is the governing expression of Christianity. That mm. if an individual can choose the destination of their eternal soul, then surely this individual can choose 
to live correctly, can choose who they fall in hmm. love with, can choose um, all sorts of things around this idea around choice. And so for Hoover um, and the FBI and FBI agents, it's very simple that if one is not properly Christian, it is impossible for one to be moral. And if you're not moral and you're engaging in ways that are immoral, that you are contributing to the breakdown of society. So uh, near the end of your book, you mentioned someone who I actually personally knew before he died a few years ago, Dr. John Raines, a professor of religion at Temple University. And along with his wife, Bonnie, and a small group of others, uh, they really disrupted things for Hoover and the FBI, as you write about in your book. Uh, And so for listeners who don't know, this religion professor and his wife and a few others broke into an FBI office in Pennsylvania and stole thousands of documents that detailed Hoover's and the FBI's illegal activities and how, among many other things, they surveilled and harassed black religious communities, civil rights protesters, and many others who you've been talking about uh, this entire episode who did not support a white Christian vision for the nation. And that was, I believe, more than 50 years ago. So what can you tell us about what changed at the FBI because of that when that information went public? And then additionally, what sense do you have of the role of religion and race at the FBI today. Yeah, that's a that story is wonderful. For those who haven't had a chance, the documentary 1971 documents this break-in. It's an amazing documentary. And once the, once the, the, those documents are sent to, the, to several newspapers, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, only the Washington Post, led by Miss Graham at the time, published these documents. And once these documents are published in March, of 71, Americans finally have proof now that the FBI has been doing what many Americans felt it was doing all along, harassing students, um, spying on um, women's groups, harassing African-American freedom fighters, and so forth and so on, and um, extorting and surveilling uh, folks the FBI thought uh, may have been uh, queer brothers and sisters. So once that all comes out, first the first thing that happens, interestingly enough, is that stained glass window that you mentioned, uh-huh. um, the, the plaque bearing Hoover's name disappears. And Hoover sends FBI agents there um, undercover to figure out what happens. And so they pose as tourists going and looking around the church and they write back to Hoover in the FBI file, you know, Mr. Hoover, someone removed it. It was bolted down. The plaque is gone on the outside. Um, we think it was the liberal minister who is sides with civil rights leaders, but we mm. can't we can't investigate any further without embarrassing the FBI, embarrassing ourselves. Mm. So that's the first thing that happens. And then Hoover, of course, seeks these folks, um, tries to find uh, John Raines, Bonnie Raines, and the whole crew, and of course they, they've never discovered. Hoover dies uh, the following year in 1972. And what happens at the bureau is that there are some changes for the first time. Women are hired as special agents. Um, it's a it's a former nun and a woman who's in the, the 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 military were both hired as the first two women special agents. So even though they were women, they still did not depart from Hoover's idea of a minister and a soldier. Hmm. The the uh, worship services continue. Um, by the eighties, by the eighties, um, the Department of Justice General Counsel advises the FBI that they should no longer be using taxpayer dollars to 
pay for these worship services, that it should be now by uh, done by bureau agents should be uh, making donations to fund for these worship services. Um, they try to say this is for the morale of the bureau, but their general counsel says, well, if you are buying speakers, um, you know, for to have music played outside in the courtyard or during lunch, that could be written off as for morale. But having a Protestant worship service um, probably is not a great idea, right? But they, they still invite people like Pat Robertson to come and speak to them twice for their Protestant worship services. Even all the way up in the 2000s, um, it was shown report by National Public Radio that the Westboro Baptist Church was invited to the FBI Academy to speak to new employees. Um, that, of course, many, many may know Westboro Baptist Church was a church that came, became known as, and excuse this term, but this is, this is what they called themselves, the God Hates Fags Church. Um, and that's, that's, that's the self-title that they, they, they've embraced. And also that God laughs at uh, American soldiers who died in war. They would say things of this nature. So they were invited to the FBI in the early 2000s. So the worship services, from what we can tell, continued. And the FBI did increase its um, agents of color at one point in time. In the 80s, it reached a high point of about 12% of the agents being African-American. But then there was a, um, several lawsuits by both Latinx and African-American agents for racial discrimination within the Bureau. There were three lawsuits beginning in the 80s, ending in the early 2000s. All three were victorious within the Bureau. Judges agreed that the FBI had shown itself to be discriminatory. But unfortunately, the number, the percentage of African-American FBI agents since these lawsuits has dropped from 12% in the 80s. Now, in 2021, the numbers that released showed that there were 4% of the FBI was made wow. up of African-American special agents. So we have an FBI that it seems to be continues to um, recruit in a particular way that is policing an increasingly diverse nation with an increasingly homogenous force of law enforcement officials. And I think that whether or not the intention is there in the Bureau, I think we've seen with the January 6th report, which states that there was multiple streams of intelligence that federal law enforcement had at its disposal mm -hmm. that should mm -hmm. have told them there was going to be violence at January 6th. But somehow, in some way, um, January 6th and the violence that happened there and the loss of life that occurred there um, somehow was was not stopped and that federal law enforcement was, was not prepared. And it seems to me that this is a blind spot within our bureau, that there was no problem with labeling um, radical Islamic terrorism. There was no problem mm -hmm. labeling things such as that. But now that we've seen an increase in this country around white Christian terrorism, individuals who say that they were informed by a set of ideals around America being a white Christian nation, and they see themselves as protecting it by assaulting uh, Jewish brothers and sisters and people of color. I think that the Bureau for, it seems to have a blind spot there because they won't even label it as such. You know, the FBI has come out with a new term about racially motivated violence, as opposed to calling it what it is, um, that we are seeing one group of people in the country, 
who seem to be the, the large uh, perpetrators of this kind of violence in this country. But yet the Bureau won't call it as such. It uses the more bland term as racially motivated crime. And I think that that shows that the blind spot that's there at the Bureau and even not just the Bureau, but what the general public, um, what the Bureau might, the blowback the Bureau might get if it actually named what we're seeing in our society. The Bureau might then get blowback from Congress and other folks in the country. So I think what we see here at the FBI is a blind spot in an area that we really need to, to work on if we're going to have a more perfect union in this country. Thank you. That's helpful uh, and 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 disturbing, but but ultimately helpful. Uh, for our last question, this is where you've started. So I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. But for our last question, I'm curious if, for you now having done all this research and written this book and and seeing and connecting the dots of how the FBI has promoted white Christian nationalism, what have those insights offered you as you try to make sense of the presence and pervasiveness of white Christian nationalism throughout the country today and and in our halls of government? You know, I say what I'm about to say as someone who, as I say in, in, in in the book, I say this as someone who was raised in white evangelical institutions, you know, I went to a white evangelical college. Um, I was raised in the religious culture. I was saved um, in uh, these communities. So I say this as someone, not as an outsider, but in many ways as someone who was formerly a part of that community. And I think what I've, what I've come away with in researching this book is that this notion of, of, of white Christian nationalism and this commitment to a racial hierarchy by using other frames of reference, but nevertheless committed to a certain kind of racial and sexualized hierarchy and gender hierarchy, I think has shown me that it was always there from the beginning with white evangelicals. I think that, you know, we've often thought about Billy Graham and Carl F.H. Henry and others as individuals who started a movement, um, the, the new evangelicals as they were called themselves at the time, And then around the 70s with abortion debates that somehow the movement was then hijacked Hmm. um, by political operatives and by opportunistic politicians who then hijacked the movement and led it astray. And I think that that's incorrect, that the relationship between white evangelicals and J. Edgar Hoover, I think, shows me that from the beginning, this, this ghost, if you will, that continues to be with us today was there from the very beginning. And I think that for my white evangelical brothers and sisters, if they're serious about ridding themselves of this, you've got to go back to the foundations. And the foundation there they'll find was J. Edgar Hoover and his FBI. And I think that, you know, in the book I discovered that there's always been a remnant of white brothers and sisters who saw this as wrong and, and said as much. And so I hope that they will also find encouragement in this book that I chronicle the folks who were writing to Christianity Today and Carl F.H. Henry saying, what are you doing? Why are are you publishing J. Edgar Hoover's essays? He's not an evangelical. He doesn't see Christianity the way that we see it. He's ignoring racism. He's ignoring uh, uh, white supremacist violence. Why are you publishing his essays? And so I think that there is a remnant today that says the same thing, 
whether it's the overwhelming commitment to Donald Trump when he ran for president or the overwhelming commitment to um, not speaking up against injustices, against people of color. I think that there is a remnant today and that feels the same way. And I hope that they will find encouragement in this book. And I think that overall, if we're going to overcome this, we've got to be honest about it. We've got to be clear about the history before we can actually um, correct it. And I hope that this book will provide a level of historical honesty so that we can actually face the problems head on and then figure out how we're going to move forward. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your fascinating work and for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Lerone Martin. You can find an excerpt from his book, The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism in the Revealer's upcoming February issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month, we'll be discussing the connection between American Jews and comedy. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.